Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you today. Everybody doing all right today? Hey, I see some faces that we don't normally see. Is this a special day or something? It's good to see uh, all of you that are here from out of town. Um, it, it is a Father's Day, and my wife got up this morning. She said, Happy Father's Day, and I said, I am a happy father. Isn't it good um, to, to, in your journey as, as dad, to be able to say, I'm happy to be a father. And so I, I'm definitely happy to be a father to my kids. I know that I share that the pride that I have in my family, that all of you fathers in the room, you have the same for yours. Uh, they're your kids. You love them. You're glad that you get the privilege that God gave them to you, that you get to, to have a hand in raising them. Doesn't always go good. Sometimes they turn out better than you're raising, right? But uh, we're so grateful that um, we can trust that God, uh, he's the one, it was his idea, fatherhood was his idea, um, and despite how our world may try to redefine all different kinds of things, uh, there are some things that are as plain as the nose on your face, and one of those is that there is a need for fathers in the world. Um, I think if we all take time and stop and think about our own fathers, whether they're here or not, um, you know, my dad normally tunes in and watches uh, during the course of the week sometime our, our service. And so, Dad, I love you. I, I'm so incredibly blessed to have been, to be your son. And I know Brian feels the same way. Um, I wouldn't be who I am without my dad. Um, so... He'd probably say enough about me. Move on. <laughs> but I do want to pray for fathers today. And uh, as I look around the room, I see a lot of great dads. And I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for how you invest in your family, how you love them, how you give them your all. And uh, just grateful for you. Let's pray. Um, and then I don't think we have any announcements I will make an announcement at the end of service uh, related to an event that's happening during the week at church. But other than that, I don't know of any other announcements. I promise, Barbara, I'll announce at the end of the service. Well, let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful to be in your house on this day. Uh, it is a special day, first of all, because we are reminded of an empty tomb and a risen Savior. And because of Him, we have life. And apart from Him, we are spiritually dead. So we are thankful. Those of us that are Christians that are here today, that we can praise and thank You for Your demonstration, Your example of what it means to be a good Father. You provided for us when uh, we just turned our backs to You and ran the opposite direction. Yet You lovingly uh, pursued us in Christ and we are now your children. And more and more each day we discover what that means. How awesome it is to be called one of your children. Just as John says in 1 John, how great a love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. And, and we are. So Father, we praise you. I lift up Lord today, Father's especially those that are in this room. Um, and I'm so thankful that on this Father's Day, they are here where I believe they should be, and it's not just my belief, but I think it's their belief too, that they should be right here worshiping you on this day. I pray that as they leave and they go home and they enjoy being made much of today, that they would rejoice in their families, that they would enjoy being together Remind them again, Father, of their solemn role in the lives of their kids, their family. Encourage them today. Help them to know uh, that because fatherhood was your idea, you desperately want them to be successful. You have given them all that they need in Christ in order to be good fathers. So I lift them up to you. I praise you for them. And I ask God that you continue to work in their lives to increase their fatherly impact and influence. We love you. We praise you, our Father. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
Let's stand and worship together. Wow. <laughs> we live in such a beautiful world, don't we? But it's not perfect, is it? 
I was working on my backhoe yesterday and I was using this chain and actually some chains that are much bigger than this. And I was thinking what a wonderful tool a chain is. But it made me think about all the times in the Bible that we read about chains. And uh, usually it's not in a positive context. It talks about when we hear about chains, we hear about demons and sickness and sin. And it made me start thinking. And by the way, my backhoe is so awesome. I mean, you may have a favorite place to pray and meditate. My favorite place is my backhoe. Some women take antidepressants. I just get on my John Deere 310D. <clears throat> so I was using this chain, and I was thinking about uh, what Pastor Shannon has been sharing with us the last few weeks about the brokenness of this world. I our brokenness because of the fall. When God created the world, it was perfect. And when he created man, he said, and this is very good, but we all know what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. And the Bible tells us that not only were we cursed, the earth was cursed. And so I have to work on my backhoe to get rid of thorns and cactus and all kinds of things that um, make the earth less than perfect. And so as I thought about chains, I thought about the fact that uh, when man fell and when sin entered the earth, um, man became chained. We sin, and it's like a chain around us. I asked Joey to come up here because I didn't want to hurt any of these little critters, but... Um, yeah. He said I couldn't... I, this chain wouldn't hold him, and he's probably true, but if you picture, like, if I had hundreds of these chains and I just I'm chaining Joey up because of sin in his life and he can't help it because he's he was um, let me see if I can hook this back here <laughs> maybe it was uh, who knows what kind of sin you can't picture these little kids with sin in their life, can you? I can't. <laughs> I'm not talking about Joey. I'm talking about these little critters. But let's say I had a hundred of these chains. And ch he's chained up because of the sin and brokenness in the world. And if I had a hundred of these on here and they're so heavy, they're just weighing him down on the ground, could he get up and work out at the gym? Could he uh, go to football practice? Could he get to the dinner table to eat nutritious food? No, he's so chained and weighted down from sin that he could never be the great athlete that God created him to be. That's what sin does to us. That's what the fall does to all of us. We're not perfect anymore. We're, we're weighted down and chained up. I wish I'd brought four or five chains, Joey. <laughs> because this just this doesn't look too bad, does it? <laughs> but I'm here to tell you that we are all um, susceptible to being chained down. We are born that way. But I know a chain breaker. I know a way maker. 
I know the one who can break the chains in our lives and make a way for us. And so I just want you to know, I want you to know, Walker, yes, that there is someone that you can meet and know personally that can break the chains in your life. Buana Asafiwe, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that even though even though you created a perfect world and even though Adam and Eve sinned and even though that sin uh, was passed down to us in our DNA, that you had a plan all along and that you are our chain breaker. And Father, we just praise you for that. We just want to worship you all the days of our lives, Father, and bring glory and honor to your name. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our way maker and our chain breaker. Amen. You may be here this morning and think, I didn't have that father. That father that took me to church every Sunday and, and cared about me and loved me. Some of you do. And that's amazing. But let me tell you from experience that even though you don't have that father, there's a heavenly father you can set your eyes on and he is perfect in every way every single way and as we learned a few weeks ago that God would not give us a snake if we asked for a fish he would not give us a stone if we asked for bread and so no matter what kind of father you are raised with take your eyes off of them and set your eyes on Jesus Christ the author of the
invisible, God only wise. We bow down to you because you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are God of all the galaxies and the universe. And so we need you. Nothing escapes who you are. And so, God, we come to you this morning confessing that there's part of our heart that thinks that we have something to bring to the table and part of us that knows that we have nothing to bring to the table. And so, God, this morning we pray that you would just tear up the hard ground in our hearts. You would crush us for the sin that we so dearly hold on to. And, God, you would speak truth into our lives this morning. So that one day as we stand before you, we will rest on nothing but the goodness of Jesus Christ. Change us this morning, Father. That's our prayer and our desire. In your name alone we pray. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So grateful. For you, James, and for the wonderful job that you and Brooke and Denise do Sunday after Sunday leading us in worship. Very grateful for you, brother. Um, this morning, um, as Denise and James were getting ready, they always have a little practice time before church, before you guys get here. And uh, James was talking about how the service was set up. We sang immortal, invisible, God only wise. And, and when you think about God in those ways, well, what's the next obvious thing for us to do? It's to bow down before Him. And then we sang about the God of wonders beyond our galaxy and how He's holy. Well, how should we respond to that? We say, we say Lord, I, I need You. I need You. And so... You may not have put all those things together. He just prayed in that way to put those things together. Uh, and I don't... James, it's perfect. It's exactly what we needed to sing this morning. And so thank you, brother. Um, if you have your Bible with you today, and I hope and pray that you do, uh, if you will grab it and turn to the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 5. You know what? Why does that say Romans chapter 5? Because that's absolutely not right. <laughs> it's Ephesians chapter 2. How about we try that? That would have been really weird if I had preached a message on Ephesians and you're looking at Romans. Well, that's the price you pay for having a pastor who went to Texas a So, have my own handicapped parking spot out back. So, it's Roman. I, I did it again. Ephesians. Chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's a hardback black one around you. Grab that. Turn to the back of the Bible. Find page 151. You'll be at Ephesians 2, 1, 2, 3. Uh, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And this is God's Word. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we read this passage of Scripture. And there are words that stand out there. Dead, trespasses, sins, lust of the flesh, desires of the flesh, children of wrath. We may think that this is like a, a horror movie that we can just simply, if we're flipping through the channels, we watch a little bit and we think, I'll just flip past this. This is not something I want to hear about today or think about today. But Father, you have in your kindness and goodwill toward us brought us to this place today where this text will lay our hearts open before you. 
So grant to us today, Lord, that we might receive what you say to us today and that we might understand more fully who we are apart from Christ. If there are any here, Lord, any at all, who don't know Jesus as that kind and wonderful Savior who willingly laid down his life to redeem people from their sin, I pray that they would understand their need for him today, that they would be willing to repent of their sin and that the chains of sin that would damn them to hell would be broken. They would have a relationship with you and that they would be filled with life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, we are in a series right now called Getting Lost. Getting Lost. And there's a threefold purpose behind this particular sermon series. There's more purposes, but I'm just kind of revealing them as they become appropriate in uh, the course of this series. I shared with you the first time that uh, the first Sunday, it's actually, this is our third Sunday, so two Sundays ago, uh, that we're doing this sermon series, Getting Lost, lost pertaining to particularly what we're talking about today, uh, being spiritually dead, so that we who are saved might remember our former lost state. In fact, this is the type of, of person that Paul is talking to today in Ephesus, people that were formerly walking according to the course of this world, who were dead. Then another reason I wanted to do this series is so that it would reveal lostness. It's one thing to be a Christian and to understand what you were before. But if you're not a Christian, you don't understand what you are now. So I'm preaching this sermon series for that purpose, that you might understand who you are, what you are right now, that it would reveal your lostness. But we need to determine what does it mean, lost? What does that mean to be lost? And so that is part of the reason why this sermon series is uh, before us also. Two weeks ago, the title of the sermon was How It All Started, How Adam Got Lost. We looked at the first three chapters of Genesis. We discovered that Adam sinned against God by disobeying God's command about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Last week, we talked about how it spread. So Adam got lost and how it spread to humanity, how humanity got lost in Adam. We were introduced to this word called imputation. Uh, you can think of it this way. Um, this past week, our president was a representative for the entire country at the G7 Economic Summit. And he also uh, spoke to Vladimir Putin this week. So he was our representative. If he had right then and there declared war against Russia, we would all be at war too because he's our representative. And so Adam declared war against God by sinning against God. And he did so as a representative, the representative of the human race. So when he sinned, humanity sinned. Because he got lost, humanity is lost. This morning we're going to talk about how deep it went. Where it started, how it spread, now how deep it went. In other words, how lost is humanity? Now thus far in the sermon series we've talked about lostness in terms of Adam, how his sin led to physical death for all of humanity. When God commanded Adam not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he warned him in Genesis 2.17, saying, On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But when Adam ate of the fruit that day, he didn't drop dead in the garden. He would die physically in about 900 or so more years, just as God promised in Genesis 3.19, that Adam would return to the dust from which he came. But on the day Adam ate of the fruit, what God prophesied came, through, came true. Adam died spiritually. Therefore, as our representative, Adam imputed to us sin and guilt and death, both physical and spiritual. Now, if you continue to read in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, it tells us that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness, According to his image. Now that ought to make us think about uh, back when God said, Let us create man. Let us make man in our image. And it says, In his likeness, he created them, male and female. He created them. So 
Adam had a son who would then inherit his father's sin nature. He would also inherit his father's guilt. So that's why when Adam died, when Adam's son died, according to Hebrews 9.27, it says, It is appointed for man once to die, and after this comes judgment. So because Adam sinned, his son was born with a sin nature, his image according to his likeness, and he died just as his father before him. So that teaches us that humanity is born into physical corruption and spiritual corruption. And so it's there, the, the spiritual corruption, where we turn our attention this morning. Paul begins in, in verse 1 by saying, And you were dead. And you were dead. By you, uh, Paul's referring to Gentile Christians. People who aren't Jews, who who didn't come from the line of Abraham. They're not Jewish. It's Gentile Christians. He says, you were, prior to your conversion, dead. Now again, we've already said that they were dead spiritually. They were physically alive, yet they were spiritually dead. How is it they were spiritually dead? It's in this way. They were alienated from God. And they were unresponsive to any of God's person or will. However, they were alive to every active, wicked influence that came across their path. That is what it meant for these former Christians, former uh, pagans, to be dead spiritually. You might, um, here's a term I think would be helpful for us to understand that perhaps can help you. Pull together a basic definition of spiritual deadness. They're spiritually dead. They were in radical moral corruption. Radical moral corruption. Alright, so I'm going to tell you what it means and what it doesn't mean. First of all, radical moral corruption does not mean that the image of God in humanity was completely lost in the fall. However... It does mean that the image of God in humanity has been seriously defaced, disfigured, broken. Radical moral corruption does not mean that humanity has no knowledge of God. It does mean, and I can point out this to you in Scripture, it does mean that humanity has enough knowledge about God to be hostile toward Him. In fact, they hate Radical moral corruption does not mean that a human no longer has a conscience or is insensitive to good and evil, but it does mean that all humanity is born with a bent to sinning. It's natural. Radical moral corruption also does not mean that humanity is incapable of virtuous deeds, but it does mean that even our most virtuous deeds are corrupted. They are contaminated by our moral corruption. And in fact, even the most virtuous thing we do is self-serving, not God-serving. Finally, radical moral corruption does not mean that humanity is as morally corrupt as it could possibly be. But it does mean that humanity is inclined to ever-increasing moral corruption. We would get worse in our sinning if we could, but praise God. God's restraining grace, His common grace, restrains humanity's moral corruption so that we aren't as bad as we could possibly be. So let's make sure we, we understand this in a very simple way. We are not born good. The Bible will not substantiate a view of humanity that says humans are born good and then parents mess them up or school messes them up. Whatever kind of exterior conditioning they have, that's what messes them up. But my kid was born good. That's why mamas, they're so eager to think in front of the principal, no, my baby wouldn't do that. My baby's good. Well, okay then. So Paul tells us, you were dead spiritually. It's radical moral corruption. But notice in verse 1 also what he says, 
And you were dead in your, your trespasses and sins. You see, when God imputed Adam's sin to humanity, God considered humanity to have been actual participants in the very act of Adam's first sin. And therefore, they incurred the actual guilt of Adam's sin. And humanity would receive Adam's penalty of death. We talked about that last week, how death spread to all men because all men sinned in Adam. But not only would humans receive Adam's penalty of death, they would also receive Adam's penalty of moral corruption. But notice how Paul talks about it. He does not talk about it and say, you are dead in Adam's sin. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And that indicates that each one of these converted Gentile Christians at Ephesus, they were participating in their own sinful actions on their own accord and incurred their own guilt for those actions. Now here in this text, and again I'm reading the, excuse me, the New American Standard, but this, this word trespasses also occurs in Romans 5, 12 to 19 where we were last week and it was translated transgress or transgression. It simply means overstepping a moral boundary or limit. So last week when we were talking about Adam, we said Adam knew what the law of God was. It was revealed to him, you shall, don't eat of the tree of the garden. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Adam had a revealed law. What revealed law do the Gentiles have? They didn't have the law of Moses. They were pagans. Well, Paul tells us the answer in Romans 2, 14 to 15. What boundary or limit would Gentiles pass to make them guilty of trespasses and sins? Listen to Paul. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively, law as in capital L law, like Mosaic law. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else Defending them. In other words, they know right from wrong instinctively. This is why Paul can say, your trespasses and sins, such that, and here is what Paul is trying to get across, you are morally culpable. That means you're at fault. You're guilty. It's one thing to say, hey, I was born this way. I was born to sin because of my father, Adam. It's a whole other thing to say, no, you are at And that's what Paul is saying here. You are at fault. Yes, you are guilty because of Adam, but you have your own trespasses and sins that you did of your own accord, and you will incur your own guilt for those. Now, I'm not making this up. Look at what David says in Psalm 51. You remember, David in Psalm 51, he wrote this in response to the prophet Nathan coming and confronting him about his adultery and then the murder related to his affair with Bathsheba. So David says, and notice in verses 3 and 4, and and they're highlighted in yellow in in italics. Maybe you can't read that, but David says, For I know my transgressions. In other words, he says, I'm morally at fault. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. But then notice how he also talks about the moral corruption he was born in. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. So David understands that no one held a gun to his head and forced him to commit adultery with Bathsheba or murder Uriah. He said, God, I did that. He also does not see him, he does not see himself as a victim. I was brought forth in iniquity. God, don't blame this on me. He says, My transgressions, my sin, evil before you I have done. 
So he understands both his moral culpability and his moral corruption. Paul continues, verse 2, he says, You formerly walked according to. In other words, when he says you walked, he's not talking about getting from one place to another by putting one foot in front of the other. He's talking about living. And again, here, when he says you formerly walked, he's talking about when you lived, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked according to, in conformity with the course or the pattern or present path of this world. So again, Paul says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. In other words, Paul is talking about a willing conformity. A willing conformity. A willing moral conformity to the world. Again, when people sin, they do not feel as though a gun is being held to their head. They have no other choice. Paul here wants us to understand that we, when, when we choose to sin, people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, they willingly conform to the world. It's not against their will. They're not an unfortunate victim, but a willing participant. A person who sins against God willingly and gladly conforms to the world, to the present pattern and path of this world. I want you to think about it like this. Maybe this will help us to bring this all together. I've heard this story. I don't know that it's true. It sure makes for a good story. But I've heard that when Eskimos want to hunt roving wolves that threaten them, what they'll do is they'll take a knife and they'll get that knife as cold as they can get it and they'll put it in blood. So the blood will actually freeze to the knife. And they'll do it over and over and over and over until basically what they have is a popsicle with a knife on the inside. And then they'll go out into the snow and they'll put that thing down, blade up. Before long, because this wolf is inclined by nature to seek after blood, didn't have to hold a gun to his head in order to seek blood, this, this wolf will by instinct go and find, follow his nose, and find the bloody knife and begin to lick it. Before long, guess what happens to his tongue? becomes numb to the point where he no longer knows because he can't, he can't feel it. He can't feel that there's cuts on his tongue. The original blood was frozen because his tongue was numb and he continued to lick. Before long, that blood that was frozen was licked off and the blood he continues to consume is his own. The wolf willingly conformed to the way he was um, designed. No one held a gun to his head to go and lick the frozen blood off the knife. This is what it's like to be dead in trespasses and sin and willingly conform something to something that, that will lead you down the path to spiritual, eternal death. Paul also says, you walked formerly, in verse 2, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Again, walked means you lived in it. According to means you lived in conformity with the prince of the power of the air. So we're, we're talking about, I'm sorry, the devil. Not some make-believe guy in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork. It's not a spirit that is somewhere out there. Listen to how Paul describes it. He says it's the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So, wherever you find people engaged in disobedience, wherever you find a people that are characterized by disobedience, you will find the work of the devil. Again, disobedience has to do with disobeying the law of God. And there are people who will swear up and down, I am a good person. And they would take great offense to me saying that wherever you find disobedience against God, you find the work of Satan. Those people would say, I am not a son of the devil. They wouldn't. That's why the, the gospel confronts our sins so directly. But again, here it's a willing conformity to what the devil has 
to lead us toward, lead lost people toward. Not an unfortunate victim, a willing participant. In fact, Romans 1.30 describes lost people, spiritually dead people, as inventors of evil. Get bored with some of the evil they're able to do. Let's, let's dream up something else to do. But they do it willingly. No gun held to their head. Finally, Paul says, We all too live formally in a willing conformity to the flesh. Verse 3, Among them we all too live formally in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the mind, of the flesh, and of the mind. When he says we too, stop and think about this for a minute. Who is the author here? It is Paul. When he says we, he is talking about Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians. So let's put together what Paul is saying here. We too, we Jewish Christians too, we walked in. Before we were converted, we walked in conformity with the lusts of the flesh. And by saying lust, he means this inordinate self-indulgent craving that displaces any proper affection for God. God, I don't need you. I've got this. And by flesh, he's talking about the non-spiritual part of us as human beings. It's where sin and active rebellion take place. He says, we Jews, before we came to Christ, we were willingly conforming to the flesh. Again, they're not unfortunate victims, but they are willing participants. Jewish Christians, prior to their conversion, willing participants. Maybe they didn't feel like they were being conformed to the world and the devil, but their religious conformity blinded them to their willing conformity to the flesh, to live in its lusts and to indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Let me put a finer point on this. This is like Paul speaking to church folks who have been in church all their lives and don't understand that they are children of wrath living among pagan sons of disobedience. Because the Jewish people thought, because we have the law, I'm automatically saved. Salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. And so they would have never put themselves in the same place as these pagan Gentiles. That's why Paul says, we all too formally lived in this way. And were by nature children of wrath. Notice the end of verse 3. Were by nature, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul says, by nature, we were children of wrath because the internal, because of the internal moral corruption that he would have inherited from Adam. It's not because of being externally conditioned. One commentator puts it this way. We have lost the appreciation of just how shocking verse 3 would have been. Paul the Pharisee undoubtedly believed that because he was a Jew by nature, he was therefore a son of Abraham, a son of the kingdom, not a son of destruction, and therefore he was a child of God, unlike the polluted Gentiles. Now... Paul the Christian rightly understands that nature does not convey right standing before God, but instead the whole world, both Jew and Gentile, stands condemned uh, apart from, before God, apart from Christ, and therefore we all, both Jew and Greek, were by nature children of God's wrath. And it's for that reason that they are worthy of condemnation. That's what children of wrath means. Worthy to be condemned. We think of God's wrath. We want to think of it rightly. Here's another quote from the commentary. It says, The wrath in view is God's holy anger against sin and the judgment that results. It's neither an impersonal process of cause and effect, as if God's got His hands off and says, Hey, this is your consequence. That's not what it is. Neither is it an outburst of passion. Wrath describes neither some autonomous entity alongside God as if there was something outside of God known as wrath. And that wrath was going to get these people who were uh, dead in their trespasses and sins. Uh, Nor is there some principle of retribution that is to be associated closely with God's personality. In other words, hey, what goes around comes around. You sinned, what goes around comes around. 
Furthermore, the wrath of God does not stand over and against His love and mercy. Wrath and love are not mutually exclusive. And we'll see that in verse 4. He is a holy God and therefore He does not stand idly by when people act unrighteously, transgress His law and show disdain for Him as their Creator and spurn His kindness and mercy. God in His wrath acts in a righteous manner, punishing the sin in the present and then for sure, especially on the final day. Paul says, We were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Jewish Christians in their hyper-religious, unconverted state were children of wrath, just like the sons of disobedience who were walking according to the prince of the power of the air, just like those who walked according to the course of the world. It's like church folks not knowing they're genuinely lost. On Sunday nights, I've begun using a book as a discussion for us. It's uncomfortable. I hope you'll come. It's a book called The Unsaved Christian. As soon as you say that, people start getting their hackles up. I understand. I understand. But the way Paul talks about himself here in this text, I formerly was someone who thought I was saved until I met Jesus. I hope and pray that in the time that the Lord sees fit to leave me here in Cherokee, Texas, that if there are any church folks here that don't know that they're lost, that they will come to find out that they are lost. In closing, I want to remind us again what David himself said. A man after God's own heart, that's the way the Bible describes it, David understands that he sinned. It was his transgression, his sin. He said, I have sinned and I have done what is evil in your sight. And I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. But look what it says in the middle. You see that. In the beginning he says, yes I did it. Yes, part of the reason I did it was because I was born in iniquity. But in the middle, he tells God, You are just when you judge me according to my sin. Both because I was born in iniquity and also because these are my sins. God, you are just to judge me. I want to ask you a question Are you lost? Yes, Pastor, I might be lost because you're talking about imputation and radical moral corruption and you're talking about things that I perhaps I'm just not, I'm kind of lost. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. We're letting Scripture define lostness. Is it describing you? If it is, I believe this with all my heart, you will do one of two things. Either you will say like Pharaoh, who is this God that I should serve him? Who is this God? I want nothing to do with this God. Or you will sense that every one of these texts and their implications have talked about you. And you will begin to feel the chains around yourself, around your soul around your heart. You'll begin to realize who is it that can help me with my sin. Do you know why David prayed the way that he did? Because he knew that he was enslaved to sin. This particular sin that he had committed, he committed it against God. And the only one that could do anything about it was God. And God has done something about it in His Son. If you want your chains to be removed today, don't harden your heart. The Holy Spirit is impressing upon you. These things are true about you. Don't wait. Come today. Let's let's sit down. Isaiah says it this way. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins may be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. God can wash away your sins through the blood of His Son. Let's pray together. God, we thank you.
that um, you don't pull punches with us. You let us know exactly what our condition is. Thank you for doing that. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that if there are any here that are lost, that their heart would not be hardened today, that that you would soften their hearts, that they might understand their need for you, that they truly would surrender their all to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are going to have a time of response. Uh, You'll stand. We're going to sing, I surrender all. This is a great time for you to surrender all to Christ. Let's sing together. let you go. Um, a couple of things. One, announcement. Steve, you don't have to sit down. For a, um, a couple of announcements. First of all, there will be a funeral here on Tuesday. Juanita Johnson. I don't know how many of you know Juanita. Just live right down the road here across from where Timothy Sarah Packett's place was. She passed away on Wednesday night at around 6.30 and um, <clears throat> with her family there by her side and She received her dying wish that she'd be able to die in her own home. So pray for that family. Also, on Tuesday at 11 o'clock, the service will be right here. And uh, the church is helping to provide a meal for the family after the service is over. Um, And so I think, Barbara, I'm representing this right. Everything is, is, um, she has all the stuff she needs except for desserts. It's not going to be a large crowd, around 25, is that right? And so there's a need for desserts. If you'd like to help out with that, just see Barbara after the service is over. Um, If there's too many desserts, they wind up going home with the pastor. (laughs) And I'm on a keto diet, which is hard. So um, pray for that family. Also this week, Jerry and Isaac and Sydney and Michelle and Jared and maybe a few of these ragnuts, ragnut around here are going to go. No, these great kids. I love them. I really do. I love y'all. Thanks, Ella. <laughs> They're going to head to camp this week. Excited about their, their chance to go to camp this week. Last summer, unfortunately, we weren't able to. Praise God, we're able to go this year. Amen. So um, there, before we have a time of prayer and we say the Great Commission and are dismissed, anything else that you want to bring to our attention that we need to pray about? Also pray for the John Perry Sr. family. That's Maria Perry's father-in-law. He passed away recently as well. That was me. I would just ask special prayer. We're Brianna's appointment with her cardiologist is tomorrow afternoon, and they're going to be reading, talking about the results of her MRI. Okay. Okay. Um, So pray for Brianna. Also, my family and I won't be here next week. We'll be in Iowa. I'd say we we're going to miss y'all, but I'm going to be glad to be away. I'll miss (laughs) you on the way home. Is that okay? Let's stand, and we're going to have a time of prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful uh, to know that you are a good God. Uh, You you love us uh, when we are unlovable. We're thankful for what you've done for us in Christ. We praise you for that. Lord, we pray for the Juanita Johnson family, for the John Perry Sr. family. Lord, that you would bless them in their loss, that you would help them to find peace and comfort in Jesus Christ. We pray that as um, final services are being prepared and are done, that um, the family would begin to get closure. We also pray for Brianna and Father that you would um, provide answers tomorrow as they have an appointment with the doctor to find out about this latest procedure. We pray, God, that 
knowing full well that you are a God who heals, we pray that you would touch her heart and heal her, Father. And lastly, we pray for our, our group going to Central Kid this week. We pray for the sponsors. We pray for the kids. Uh, we pray for those that are going to receive them there in, in uh, Sherman. Pray that it would be a safe week, that uh, there would be an overwhelming focus upon Jesus Christ. And if there are any there that don't know Him as Savior and Lord, that this week would be their week when they are received into the family of God by grace through faith. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's say the Great Commission together. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age.